0: So, I am Martin, I work at the Fine Art Group uh, in the art advisory team.
1: And hi, I'm Shuchi, and I work for individual art advisor as well.
0: Um, so we decided to do a podcast about artists we want to learn about more. The idea is basically this. I read a biography, Shuchi reads a biography uh, and various exhibition catalogs, and then we present the artist and form an opinion as to what we deem to be their most important work. So, uh, Edvard Munch, two reasons we chose him. First of all, there were a lot of shows recently at Barbarini in Berlin, for instance, and many contemporary artists, Tracy Emin and what have you, you know, also I think are to a certain extent inspired by his, uh, you know, very emotionally charged, uh, expressive form of painting.
1: I mean, Tracy Edmund definitely loves Monk, it is her her god, basically.
0: So, yeah, how about you, uh, why don't you just start with his biography, just running us through, you know, who the hell is Monk?
1: So I'll just give everyone a short introduction to Edvard Monk and um, a short biography of where his life began and where his life ends. Um, So Edvard Monk was born in 1863, and in his early years, he mostly lived in Oslo, in Norway. Um, Monk's father was his name was Christian Monk. He was a doctor and a very religious man. As a result, the family was also very religious. And back then, apparently, doctor salary was not good. The family was never wealthy, so there was always very limited resource to to Monk since childhood. Um, there were five children in the family, so it was relatively large family with little income. Um, and, um, however, um, the larger Monk family was actually quite well off and um, rather noble in in, Nor- in Norway. For example, um, Johan Storm Monk, who was Monk's grandfather, was one of the founding members of the National Gallery in Oslo, interestingly. And um, Jakob Monk, who was a relative to Monk, he was actually the student of Jacques-Louis David. Who's that? Uh, one of the most famous um neoclassical painters in france oh and okay. so and so Jacob sort of brought in the neoclassical portraits and things like so that
0: with a quite artistic family,
1: yeah, it was a quite artistic family, surprisingly already, and also there's peter uh Peter andreas Monk, who was known as p a monk who was his uncle mm-hmm. and he was a really important historian to like creating the national identity and history of Norway. So the whole family was already very cultured and artistic, but um, Monk's father was like this poor doctor, kind of an odd one out in the family as well.
0: Yeah, and but um, th- th- that's interesting. I mean...
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a kind of background that people don't really think about when you think of Monk because he's I just mean, super particularly, famous.
0: Particularly because he's so unconventional and you know paints... You know, um, I mean, we'll we'll get to that, but you know, he he never went to university in a very yeah. formulistic sense, at least. And his painting style it's it's very raw. Um,
1: yes. So.
0: Yes, he he
1: was. I mean, he was the odd one out out of his very religious and studious family, and his whole family was kind of an odd one out of the larger family as okay. well. Okay. Um, so yeah, and. Um, in in the very early years, actually, Monk has already experienced death quite a few times in his childhood, and that has formed an important part of his experience in early childhood. His mother, Laura, died of um, died of illness when Monk was only five years old, and later his aunt Karen, who who was Laura's sister, took over the the motherly role in the family and joined the household. Um, I mean, his aunt. Um, Karen never married Christian they were always very separate he was just she was just the mother figure who was always there for Monk and supported him all the way through his adult life when he was really financially very very difficult even though the family was still always in financial troubles Um, And later in the years, his sister Sophie would die also very young when when she was 15. And his younger brother, Andreas, also died when he was only 30. And the younger brother was supposedly this much stronger, much fitter young man who became a doctor and went to medical school and everything. But in the end, somehow many of the health issues and mental issues came into the family and um, and for Monk that was a very important factor in his life and his thinking of what life is because illness and, uh, and death just always surrounded him ever since childhood and Monk himself obviously also had a very frail, frail health and he's always been ill since young and the Norwegian winters are also very harsh and it had not being nice to monk as a kid his came to death uh, he came he came he close no he came close to death quite a few times as a kid who was really ill and always in bed and that was one of the reasons that he couldn 't continue studying because he just missed too many lessons and he couldn 't continue his scholarship, and his family couldn 't support him to go to art schools basically mm-hmm. um, however, art and painting was a important part of his life since he was young and when he was 17 he wrote in his diary that it is my decision now to become a painter so that was all that has always been his 17 which year was that
0: I mean he was born in 63 you said yes so So it would have been 1880
1: yeah some yeah interesting okay yes um so yeah that's that has always been his aspiration um and so he yeah so he joined the Royal School of Art and Design in Oslo in 1880 and since then he's formed a group of friends in 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 Oslo at the time who were um these bohemians young people who were artists, painters, sculptors and writers and poets um and they were also a very important part of um, his source of inspiration at the time for his art and his thinking, but also was really foundational to his future thinking. Um, he has a couple of philosopher friends um, who has brought him to read nature and all these literature that he will continue to read for the rest of his lives. And then the turning point comes in 1889, where he had his first long stay in Paris. He took a scholarship Um, and had a whole year in Paris to study with this um, quite conservative painter, but which he soon quit. 1889,
0: interesting. Yes. Because that's already, you know, a phase when, I I mean, 1889, I strongly associate that with the Pantelist painters. You know, I think Seurat died in 1888, if I'm... Yeah. No, No, or was it 18... Ninety-two. Well, yeah. roughly around around that that time. So you you did have a lot of, you, you know, yeah, innovative I mean, voices in Paris.
1: Yeah. So it was a great experience for him, and he saw all of this Pontilism and um, Cezanne and Gauguin and everything, and he had full-on experience, which is probably why he wasn't really just quit school, um, and um and he did have a pontilist period as well, very briefly, I think, around the time, yeah. Um, but he quit school anyway, and um, that year in November, um, his father, Doctor Monk, also died of heart, um, died after a stroke, and Monk was at the time still in Paris. So it was kind of the last time he's ever seen his father before he left for wow. Paris.
0: Must have been a difficult time. So both parents de facto gone. He still has his aunt, and he's in Paris. Yes. He drops out of school. So what does he live off?
1: He he has absolutely no money. So he's he was on a scholarship. So after he dropped out of school, obviously there's no scholarship. Sure. Um, and so he had to move to this suburb that's called Saint Cloud in, in around Paris. Uh-huh. And there he just drank a lot and had a lot of smoke and all sorts of other substances and um, lived alone. Very very just uns- yeah. yes, very not social and. Um, he thought of, he thought a lot about art and he came came up with this manifesto in 1890 which is which we call the the St. Cloud manifesto. Okay. But yeah, but we, we will come to that later. Okay. Yes. And then in 1892, uh monk was invited to exhibit his pictures at the Association of Berlin Artists in Berlin. Um and that was very exciting for Monk. It was the f- one of the first exhibitions that he had that's outside of Oslo, and um, he was really hoping that there's this group of people in Berlin who would uh, really appreciate his art because he was invited to show yeah, there. Why obviously, why did they invite him? I mean, I think there was a group of people who kind of appreciated his art, like heard of it. I mean, okay. obviously, there's a lot of noise. And Norwegians what was his art
0: like at the time? I mean, how? Uh,
1: it's pretty. It's it's pretty much what we know. Monk for quite a like okay. it, kind of the precursor, but like pretty much there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, the exhibition was had a huge publicity because there was such po- polarizing opinions about it. And actually, at the end, only after one week, the show was shut down. Okay.
0: And what what with polarizing? I mean, what I would think is you know, firstly the non-idealized. Depictions of persons, you know, I think of famous motif is, is obviously um, the ill girl in the bed. Yeah, or,
1: nah, I mean, I think it's the same reason why he the was the style, perhaps that it's yeah, quite
0: naive and rough in some sense.
1: The style, yeah, but also I think the same reasons why um, he was unpopular in Oslo is also the the subject matters is like sometimes it's like people kissing and like it's just not very like ideal woman type of thing it's yeah and um yes but actually Monk didn't find it too depressing and he wrote to his aunt after the show was shut down he said i could not have had a better form of publicity so he was quite positive at the time then the next turning point comes in 1902 and um, He was by then 39 years old, so kind of middle-aged, unsuccessful painter. And he, in 1902, he's had his first successful exhibition in Berlin, and it was the first time ever he showed the complete set of the paintings um, in The Frieze of Life, which was one of his most famous series of paintings describing the meaning and cycles of life.
0: Okay, so it's like... Perhaps, perhaps a different episode, from so yes. death, birth, love. It um, yes, seems rebirth, like, like that. And yes. it, it's not too well constrained. It's not like a a, a cycle characterized by, you know, very well-defined stages, or is it? I mean...
1: Yeah, it's quite metaphorical, quite symbolic, and, and yeah. And, um, and he was very excited to be able to show this complete set together because he thinks that i think it's also to do with wagner's idea of like this total art that yeah. um you you need, really need to have the full you can only have the full experience with all of this series put together and it was from that point onwards that monk started to be recognized as a as a worthy as an important artist and an important modern master um and he started to have a lot of shows internationally i think he she, he had like 10 shows in a couple of months something like that and and just just for the context at that time he was 39 and before 1902 he's only had a couple of collectors in berlin and a couple of collectors back home and his old teacher back in oslo who was always supported him but 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 the teacher himself was also a very conservative painter, so they had very different ideas. And he always had very little support and cash and money until that point. So that was the breaking point, 1902 exhibition in Berlin. However, after his success, what comes next? A very toxic...
0: Of course, yeah
1: <laughs> a very toxic period of messy lovers, endless alcohols, smoking a lot and non-stop traveling, which was not very good for his health and his mental health, physical and mental health. So very soon in 1908, he totally broke down. He started to have like illusions and visions and everything, and can't move and I don't know, like all sorts of things. What and about
0: the women in his life?
1: The women in his life has always been very toxic. He can okay. go on on and on and on about all of the toxic women in his life.
0: Okay. But we can come to that later. Okay.
1: Yes. In, well, in 1908, he put himself into, the, into a health clinic um, to, to treat himself. And after a couple of months, he was feeling well. And in 1909, he left the clinic. And after that, he settled in Oslo and just never really left Norway again. Not really, yeah, then we come to nineteen fourteen when the when the first world war broke out. the first world war and the second world war both had a quite a significant um quite a significant effect on monk actually um after the first world war ended um obviously he still had a lot of popularity in Germany as well as in mm-hmm. Paris. But I, I
0: would just to to interrupt. I mean, I, I think one one thing we've we've not. I mean, first of all, I, I think it's surprising that the First World War would affect Monk when, you know, initially, the, the status of Norway in that war was certainly one. You know, I'm obviously not a historian, but you know, it was not yeah. among the main parties. And yeah. second, I mean, I guess we can get to that. For later, but you know, I, I think he did have a very profound influence on many of the German painters uh, of Die Brücke, you know, the, yes. the German expressionists. Yes, um, probably after they saw the show in 1902, because you know, you would think, yeah, Kirchner and Schmidt Rottlus and what yeah. have you.
1: I think they wanted to um get him into the group and make him like the founder of the De Bruker or something of like, well, the expressionist. Okay. But he, he actually refused to ever meet his fans <laughs> and he just didn't want to actually physically be associated with them. Okay.
0: Um
1: but yeah, even though Norway had nothing not much to do with World War One, but because um exactly because that uh, Monk had such a big base in Germany so a lot of his collectors and buyers were in Germany. Okay. And a lot of his paintings were in Germany. Uh-huh. That, and, after, and during the war and after the war, um, a lot of her, his collectors went, bank, uh, went bankrupt. So they had to sell their paintings and, and also um, some of them were destroyed d- during the war. Um, so that didn't go well for him has lost a lot of financial support because of that. Um, and then after after the war, obviously, there was the rise of Nazi and um, the right wings and, um, and also this anti-Semitism rising. But that
0: still took a while. I mean, if you think 1918 and, you know, the Nazi party, I think they came to power in 1933. So you have some 15 years of... I mean, probably turmoil. Yeah, but I
1: think there was like obviously there was some. Um, I think there's the feeling of antisemitism that's rising okay. throughout the years, and a lot of his. Um, I mean, the economy was really bad, sure, but sure. in like a the the in between war period, so like basically no one had any money in Germany and no one could buy his art, um, and um, yeah, and while. The war was going on. He was Monk was also unpopular at home because he was always being he's always been associated as a German painter okay. what, in a way. Yeah, and 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 everyone in Norway was anti-German. Yeah, so people didn't really like him at home.
0: What 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 was what did the art look like that was you know championed by by Norway or the kind of the academic style of of Norway around that time. I would presume that it. I mean, I would think probably very much inspired by uh, romantic painting and um, yeah. idealized. Yeah. Um, yeah and exactly. Probably also quite realistic. You know, probably a lot of attention given to to uh, technique and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, um,
1: I think that was probably more like in 1890s and okay. beginning of 19th century but after he got famous he was like really championed at home but then during the war it's kind of tricky because of his association with germany yeah. that's why people didn't really like him also in world war Two as well with um he was like even though his paintings were um defined as degenerate art by the nazi party and it was a lot of them was was um well not not lost but a lot of them was dispersed around um but i think for people in norway at the time they just didn't care that much about whether his art was degenerate or not he was just kind of seen as an artist artist who was really closely associated with germany and people didn't like him for that um and in 1940 after after germany took over norway um then in a way the Nazi party I think they wanted to um, win over the Norwegians hearts in a way and so they kind of really championed Monk because he was like the Norwegian artist and they wanted Monk's support for the party as well um, so when Monk died in 1944 um, the Nazi party actually had him a like a really ceremonial state funeral for him really public one going down the street and but Monk definitely did not want anything to do with that, um, but as a result, um, I think a lot of people in Norway at the time um, again solidified their opinion that Monk was really a Nazi painter.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So that was kind of, yeah, that's that's a odd odd ending to his life that he 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 had a funeral and and where he wa- where he, he didn't get to be buried where he wanted to be buried, and. But yeah. He died in
0: 1944, right? 1944. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. So that Where's was this? before the war ended. Okay. 80 years old.
0: It's okay. It's pretty good. Worse, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, why, why why should we care about him from an uh, you know, why, why is he important and what what works are, are his most important works? I mean, I think, you know, obviously we, we have we've, we've touched on a few themes you know he um was quite avant-garde at the time uh, within the context of Norway the real, perhaps dreams of more romantic and realistic painting and he was also hugely influential to the artists of Die Brücke such as uh, Heckel Kirchner um Schmidt-Rottluff and uh, I'm sure I'm, I'm missing someone um so you know I, th- I think he's important because he's influential he shaped a, a style that i think is you know very elegant and touching through you know a, a quite reduced palette through uh, limited colors um and um quite simplistic brush strokes i mean is there anything to add or what do you think
1: yeah I think he's really he really had his own philosophy of what painting is and what painting should be, and what role painting should have in life as in that he wanted painting to be something that that depict the truth of life that is larger than just the Depends the banality yeah. of of ordinary things
0: and so I guess he wanted to reach the audience and convey something to them. Perhaps convey to them what life is about, ultimately, or what what would you th- What's the larger thing he's getting at?
1: Yeah, mm. I think yeah, I think what is life ultimately about, but n- not in a way that not in a way as in to describe the meaning of life. But in a way, I think it's describing the experience of life.
0: Yeah, the emotional intensity, and I, yes. I presume that's why you know many artists today and also people today, you know, relate to his work in that it's it, you know obviously we can much of what is depicted is to me certainly quite detached. I you know didn't grow up in Norway. I uh, did not uh, have uh, a kiss with. Um, a girl by a fjord in Norway, ever, <laughs> um, and uh, nor did my sister. You know, I I don't have a sister, so no 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 sister died. But um, you know, I. But you know, y- yet it touches people because it's so emotionally intense. If you think of the scream, um, in a way, it feels quite foreign, but it it's also very moving at at once because it. It's, it's almost like the cliché of a particular human emotion. I mean, you know, if, yeah. if you think of, you know, dread and anxiety and have to give it an image, I think the scream would be one of the images you may choose if you want to give that yeah. condition and, uh, a picture.
1: Yes, exactly. I think, yeah, I think he is, it's kind of a symbolic of it. Um, an emotion and really condensing all of that experience in this one very iconic image that's what he does I think that's what he's really good at yeah yes
0: so I guess that also I mean I, I feel right now looking at the art market and also what artists are doing it seems to me that it's quite popular right now to rather than having a very conceptually driven practice Uh, to uh, appeal to Pesos. I mean, I think Tracy Emin is perhaps, you know, one of her talents and also Louis Bourgeois. I mean, both of these artists, I think one of their profound talents is, you know, maybe I I can't relate to both these artists. I'm a man for one. Um, Maybe... Uh, you know, I also don't share their political outlook or, or what have you can,
1: you... can you relate to monks yeah, as yeah, he's but, a man but, as well?
0: But, but um, look, I mean, I think what what's really um, great about these artists is that they convey something deeper about human experience in a very touching and profound way. And uh, they're popular now. And so I think within that context, it's only... Natural that Munch is popular now as well, unlike many of the other neo, well, uh, many of the other expressionistic painters like Schmidt Rottluff, um, Hecke, um, Kirchner. They're expressionistic, but the, I wouldn't say their work is that emotionally charged and emblematic, no, no. which is also why I think, in the certainly in the last 10 years, there's been far greater interest around Munch's earth. Uh, compared to uh, you know the, the artists of Die Brücke and general Expressionism.
1: Yeah, I think there's a way that he can really, you can really relate to it in a very um, direct way with Monk's work, whereas with other Expressionist artists' works, I think it is in a way more theoretical. I feel. Yeah. Yeah. there's more theory and constraints to about it. how
0: you should paint
1: yeah how you should paint and what color means what and things yeah. like that but whereas monk is really personal and it's very um kind of a madman's
0: yeah yeah <laughs> vision <laughs> so g- going forward perhaps when when thinking about what are his best or most important works you know what what would you pick i mean uh Would it be you know works that are the most iconic, or that would you go by what touches you most emotionally, or what what fascinates you?
1: I think for for many people, I think um, when you think of monk, well, first of all, it's The Scream, Um, and then it's these images of women that he's painted these um, port not portraits um, paintings of female well. Well, at it's at her youth and then when they're older and it's kind of a cycle of a woman's life yeah and also there's images of the kiss and all of these very sexually charged um images I, I think that's one thing that people think of but, but I think for me for me I don't think that's the most um i don't think that's the most brilliant works of monk um because I feel that his his love life is just too much charged with toxic women. Like his view of love is just too tainted by, okay, by an unusually amount of toxic women in those but, bohemian lives, and and it's kind of like a really one sided view of what love is.
0: I, I get you. I mean, I, I think you're, you're probably right. And but you know, it's it's obviously narratively compelling. I mean, who who likes to read about a uh, a healthy, fulfilling relationship <laughs> of care and understanding. You know, I mean, if if we go to the movies and you know want to well, watch a true. film about relationships, it's p- precisely it's it's Monk basically. It's you know it's, uh, some oddball guy uh, you know with anxiety and whatnot who ends up dating a woman who uh, ends up shooting shooting at him or what have you. Um, but you know, I, I get your point. Maybe it's it's yeah. Really... But like
1: in the same like in the same vein, like for me, like I feel Louis Bourgeois' way of portraying love and um, the relationship between man and woman. I think it's a it's a it's a more well rounded and a deeper yeah. way of doing it. Whereas monks is always like this terrifying woman who's like sure, yeah. sucking his blood or something.
0: So p- perhaps I mean I, I guess you know your criticism would I presume be that. I mean, it's really an internal criticism within his free cycle. So within the idea of of capturing, you know, the the important parts of life, he he has a quite mis- or ill-conceived view of of what life is about. And so rather you'd want to pick a painting of his that touches on a theme that is, is, you know, less ill-conceived.
1: Yeah, in a way. But I also feel that perhaps... I mean, love is a, is a significant part of his life, but I feel what really, what's really foundational in his life is what death is. I feel that's really shaped who he is. Mm-hmm. And so one of my favorite is called um, Death in the Sick Room. It's painted in 1893 and fairly sun- fairly large painting.
0: Is that, that around the time of the Scream, I would imagine, wasn't that Yeah, yeah, yeah. painted around that? Yeah. I mean, at least a, around the same. There are four versions of the, the Scream, scream yeah. I believe, and they're yeah, yeah I around think that time. Yeah. around
1: the times or around the same time. Yeah, um, and yeah, so it's a picture in a room with green um, green wallpapers, green wall paintings, um, and this is. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's seven figures in the painting, and this is the whole big family of monk. And mm-hmm. um, so the painting depicts the moment when his sister died, um, his sister Sophie. When he died when, died, when she died, when she was fifteen.
0: And how old was Monk?
1: Monk, I think he was one year younger, something like that. They're like one or two years apart. So Sophie was very so well. His mother died when he was five. So Sophie was at the time maybe six or something like that. And they were really close as siblings because after the mother died, um, Sophie was really the only sibling to him. I mean, Christian, the father, was kind of abusive and an alcoholic, kind of, despite being being very religious. Um, And um, um, his aunt was a motherly figure but never really the mother because they just never really felt that close with her and and then they took care of the younger kids so Sophie was really the the family for him and so in this painting Sophie is sitting in the chair um with the with the back of chair facing us in the background and next to her there's um the father monk's father um standing next to her praying um he's Always, he's always depicted his father praying in his paintings because I think that's one of the things that he really remembers of his father always praying and especially when he's ill his mother was ill when his, sis- when his sister was ill he always prayed but it never worked for him and um, next um, behind Sophie there's um, Aunt Karen who's really standing there very caring for her in the foreground there's um the first person is um sitting on a chair um bowing down her head that's um his sister his younger sister laura um so behind laura there's ingra um who's the only person who's actually staring at us facing us um in a kind of purple spotty black dress and behind ingra there's monk um she he's kind of um, only has his head out, um, coming out that we can see and he's sort of facing Sophie but with his the back of his head facing us mm-hmm. and behind Monk there's a bed where Sophie um, was lying about maybe five minutes ago before the scene but now she's sitting on a chair um, and then behind all of them on the left side of the painting there's Andreas, um the younger brother of Monk who is who's kind of leaving the leaving the room um i think for me this painting is very interesting in a way that it's interesting way of painting what death is i think in a lot of tradi- in western traditions or in a lot of traditions um like giotto's paintings of like the death of christ or something it's always this figure, who's dying in the middle, and uh, who's who sent who's centered in the painting, and you have a group of people surrounding them, sort of crying and showing their 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 remorse
0: mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's that's the traditional way of expressing death. But here it's this Sophie who is dying is sitting in the back background in the chair, and you have this group of family. Who kind of feel there is care in there, but they're very dispersed in the room. They're not really talking to each other. They're all really indulging their own emotions.
0: Yeah,
1: and yeah. there's this detachment also within, like within the family. Yeah, you see Andrea's leaving, and then you see Laura, who's who's going to have a lot of, uh, or at that time in 1893, who's already had have um, a lot of mental issues, and she went crazy for the rest of her life basically yeah. um and ingra was actually the only the only person who was the the real support of the family she kept the income coming yeah. with her piano lessons and things like that so she was the pillar of the family mm-hmm. and monk i don't know what he's doing here but um it just kind of feels like that there is a detachment here he kind of felt maybe this Shame, or maybe it's—I don't know what yeah. it is—and yeah, I just feel.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to you know when thinking of well to to portray death less through you know this kind of ego maniacal perspective of you know the suffering um, of of the, the victims and um, you know m- more thinking about how it perhaps. Changes relationships in the long term without you know the 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 yeah i i'd say suffering um, both of, of the person who dies and the people within the moment who you, you know may, may cry perhaps to to focus on um, the more long term family relationships and how you know in this scenario you know what what we see is um you know, obviously, uh, the majority of the family is very much overwhelmed, and how um, uh, they're perhaps not sticking together as much as they should, and yeah. how there's only one figure, namely Ingrid who can uh, look beyond and maintain a clear head, because ultimately, with with any death, I I, I would think, you know, suffering and Agony it has its justification and it's important it's important to express feelings, but you, you know what do you do after that
1: yeah i think yeah I think one one thing that's also interesting is that the reason why Sophie is in this chair is because that was his her last request that she said she didn't want to lie on lie in the bed anymore she wanted to to, to sit in this specific chair so that's when she um stood up and moved to the chair and then she died on this chair and i think monk also kept this chair for the rest of his life and i think that's it's it's like a significant moment for him also that she really wanted to live she really did not want to die i think yeah it Mm. was she was kind of looking towards the future as well in that moment. Well, of course, I think, yeah, his painting is a is a, is a representation of all sorts of different times that's combined together, but in association to this theme.
0: Yeah. Good. I mean, perhaps I move on to, to my favorite work. Um, I, I have to admit when you... Uh, badmouthed the cliche themes such as the scream the kiss and anxiety and whatnot uh, I
1: didn't badmouth the scream i just badmouthed the the the, the
0: okay, toxic okay the kissing woman the the toxic women i as a guy obviously immediately fell for the toxic women um, but so i'm i'm a bit in the corner now well I, in, in fact what i wanted to discuss is I've been tremendously fascinated by uh, Munch's Prince. So uh-huh. m- my understanding is when he went to Berlin in uh, the early 1890s, uh, you know, he created a lot of controversy, but as a prudent businessman, m- he also looked at uh, how he can create multiples as it were, just like, yes. you know, Andy Wall or other artists might yes. have done. Uh, in um, in the 20th century, uh, Munch was concerned with multiples. And um, so he worked incredibly creatively, incredibly innovatively with uh, lithographs, dry point, and my favorite of all, his woodcuts. Mm-hmm. And they, they were, you know, he would often combine different methods using woodcut, using dry point in a single work. And he would also... You know, typically when you do a woodcut and you have several colors, you have, so it's, you, you know, you, you cut the wood with a pattern for the blue print and then you have another piece of wood you cut appropriately, say, for the red print and then you have the blue and, then, and print it on paper and then you have the red and print yep. it on paper. But Munk was, um, you know, he, he would uh, create like this this grids where he could have um, smaller wooden wood blocks like elements and combine them together so that that he could color one part in red and another one in blue and he was just extremely messy sometimes he also just painted a single wood block one corner red the other one blue and then in the middle there'd be a mixing of color
1: Mm. i think did he, like, kind of color one block in different colors exactly. like, at the same time? I mean, yeah.
0: he, he did that. He, uh, I mean, it was incredibly so, experimental. Yeah, so he
1: kind of had, you know, you see the color mixing, like, on the wood woodblock. In, block, in, pa- kind in of. part. Yeah. So
0: you see it mixing, but, you know, as I said, he would also have, like, these puzzles yeah. composed out of several parts, which prevents the mixing, because yeah. you, you still have, like, the so, separate elements, as it were. Um and, you know, I think these, these works are immensely innovative. I think they're perhaps the nicest woodblock wood prints there are. Um, incredibly sophisticated. Um, you know, often, you know, with the grain of the wood in the composition, varying it a lot. De facto, each one of these prints is a unique work because he experimented with these yeah. images. and. I think, you know, aside from being fascinated by the medium and his experimentation, I think it's a very important part of his oeuvre because, you know, I I think, you know, we spoke about the freeze of life and how there are certain themes he cares about, right? Yeah. Um, And so he tended to repeat motives throughout his career. So he paints a painting in 1885 of... um, I don't know, Love is Kissing, and then he'd re- revisit that in 1890, and yes. then in 1914 and yes. 1930, or what have you.
1: And he would also do that in his prints. His prints also consists, exactly. conceives of the same themes and subject matter. And he would change matter. them
0: quite dr- drastically at times. You know, he would keep the wood plates, sometimes yeah. adding more details to it, uh, using different colours. And so I, I think it's it's perhaps print is a more successful medium than painting if your work is at its core around, you know, adapting and revisiting certain themes in your earth. Interesting. Um, So, um, you know, I mean, uh, you you can have more variations, you can experiment more, uh, rather than having to start again from scratch with a painting. And so I think that's what I, I find so fascinating, the the sheer amount of uh, variation with you, you know, th- those different techniques, combining them, messing them up in the sense of doing what you're not supposed to do, but obviously to, 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 very masterfully. So, um, and of the prints, I was initially inclined to say the kiss. The, the, you mm-hmm. know, there, there's a wonderful dry point one of um, a, a woman and man kissing, but um, the man is a skeleton, so you you see, uh, you, you, you know, the, the, the torso, uh, you know, the, the skeleton, and how he uh, embraces the woman. Um,
1: would, would you like to just briefly explain what drypoint is?
0: So, yeah, I mean, drypoint, it's, I mean, to, to not sound too pretentious, it's an intaglio um, uh, print technique, so... Um, basically, you, you typically use a copper plate. I mean, you have, can have various metals. And then you use a needle to uh, scratch by hand into the copper plate. Um, and then uh, you uh, cover it uh, in, a, in a layer of, of ink. And then, um, well, yeah, you have the, the, the ink go into the uh, indentations left by the scratches. And then you press the paper and the copper plate very tightly together, so that the paper is, in a way, forced to go into the incisions of the copper plate to cut, to um, to get get out the ink. And it's a bit different to um, etching, where you uh, would uh, basically um, have the, the the lines in the copper plate. You you basically create them through. Uh, Acid burning into the copper plate. Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail. It's it's a really fascinating topic. I think etchings and the the, the, the and uh, um, the, the various methods. Um, but yeah, going back to the image, I just considered it a very powerful image because it combines both love, romance, and death, perhaps. Alluding to, you know, monk's ill-conceived idea of, of, of love, of, you know, perhaps the, the woman in your life, uh, uh, you know, Sucks sucking your out, like out your, your, life, your, 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 your life energy. But, you know, I, I felt now maybe I, I would have to distance myself from, <laughs> from uh, that, that work, given... Uh, what Trucci said, that it's, 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 uh, it's an ill-conceived... Uh, mm. But I, I think, I, uh, I
1: guess it's also, um, like the skeleton is a consisting subject matter in his work as well. He had his self-portrait um, print, There's the bust of himself, and then there's the skeleton sort of arm, arm, and um, it's a lot of memento mori and all of that. But
0: but the skeleton is actually it's more present in his early works, actually. So if you is it? So you know, I think with the skeleton arm, I I forgot the the name of that. Probably self portrait. I I think that's from the 1890s. The dry point I just spoke about a a very early version of the kiss. It's from 1894 or five, I believe.
1: I mean, I think later in his life, he just kind of, uh, let's say, went a bit soft.
0: <laughs> I, I'd say so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think probably the influence of Matisse is, is significant to mention, and the uh, the Fauve artists. Mm. So you know, in his paintings, but also in his woodblocks, he uses uh, far more color. I don't think it's 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 worse, but it's uh, it's it's just a, I, I think maybe a, a more
1: yeah, I think he tried to reinvent his, himself several times, um, like when he was in the clinic and trying different techniques of painting and as well. But I uh, think his subject matter as well, it's not as v- sort of vivid as what it used to be. It became like there's these portraits of wealthy men and then there's these like yeah. snow scenes and it's all quite Yeah, like, I, I don't really like this, yeah. the
0: snow scenes. I mean, they just seem... I mean, I think many artists, uh, I mean, I think that's pretty much after the, the, the First World War that he, yeah. He. Uh, it's almost quite kitsch. It's like a, a yeah, very yeah. I mean, uh, picturesque a, his gigantic- portrayal of farmers, yeah. of farm work. And yeah. uh, it, it really, I mean, I think that the late woodcuts are still very good because I think the imagery there is more... Uh, traditional yeah. you know so you know you, it's often couples couple in front of the water in front of the forest and I think the the color palette is just far more rich than in his earlier works but I, th- I think his late paintings you know they, they just feel quite pleasant or as if he's trying yeah. to be pleasing particularly also t- t- toward the, the, the ordinary person so yeah, I, I think yeah, in terms think of so, painting yeah. probably up to the first world war at latest probably up to 1910 I wouldn't want to mm, go further I think
1: his last great work is probably more like the Aula paintings The Sun yeah I think mean, that was that was a good imagery that was
0: 1905 or 1902
1: when... uh, I mean the the actual uh, so it's it's a design for um, one of the uh, war paintings the main paintings. hall in the yeah, university yeah it's a frieze it? so um, I think the actual project is finished in 19. 19- 16 or something okay. like that but um, yeah the idea is conceived in like 1909 yeah. Yeah.
0: but you know I, I mean if I can defend the woodcuts I think the later ones are still very good because the seams are still I think really what, yeah. what we like about monk. but the colours are just and I, I think you know his mastery of the woodcut technique combining more compositional elements more colours and whatsoever um I think he, he's a bit more um, confident with his technique. Um, and uh, yeah.
1: Yes, in the topic of experimentation, um, not only with prints, he's actually experimented a lot with photography as well in the early days. Um, so he bought his first camera in 1902. Um, and one of his most famous um, portfolios is called the Fatal Destiny portfolio, um, which was from... 1902 to 1908, a series of photographs. I think it's quite interesting with his photographs that he would sort of ex- expose the um, the film several times on the same film so that you'd see like a ghostly figure of himself sort of walking on the beach or uh-huh. walking amongst his own paintings, like when, this ghost that's.
0: When did he start experimenting with photography?
1: 1902, when he. F- no, his first I mean camera that, that's really early
0: because yeah. you know i think you know double image exposure you know th- these are things you know uh, many of the artists associated with the bauhaus you know they, they also used photograms man ray but that was the 1930s or 1920s yeah so it's, it's quite, i think quite curious
1: i think for monk one of um, the thing about Photography is also his the spiritual side. I mean, at the time, like end of nineteenth century, there's this huge wave of um, uh, having a medium, you yeah. know, and all of this connection with the death. And then on photography, there's this thing that when when is. Falsely exposed, you'd see like a ghostly figure yeah, often, yeah. and they would often think that this is like some spirits coming or sure. things like that. I think that's sure. also part of it. But it's kind of interesting that he's photographed himself as this really ghostly figure.
0: And did he treat it or consider it as an art form or as part of this art? I mean, yeah. you, you mentioned earlier that he cared about the Gesamtkunstwerk. So,
1: the what? Uh, oh, the total art form. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> So would would that be something he would, you know, I think consider as art, display with his paintings, or how, how does that fall in?
1: Well, one thing is one thing he used it for is um, to to use it as as an advertising sort of thing to show his collectors what this painting or whatever looks like. Sure. Um And the other, like
0: the d- double image exposure, for instance.
1: Yeah, I think. I would think that it is probably part of his art of, for one thing, that he named it. He named his album called okay. "Fatal Destiny," which sounds okay. like yeah, a proper yeah. thing. Sure. Um, and and yeah, he's taken a lot of self-portraits with it, especially, um, especially with his own art together with yeah. him. It's kind of kind of interesting, like taking yeah. your self-portrait with your own art.
0: Sure. I mean, why why would you do that?
1: Yeah. It's ki- yeah. I don't yeah. know. It's yeah. ki- it's yeah. kind of interesting to just ponder about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. And yeah, and he so- he'll sometimes print an image and sort of draw on it and just reprint several images like at different scales Would and he also like
0: that. On
1: yeah, he, like, not really paint, but like sketches. Like okay. he would sketches, like dog and trees and okay, things oh, like that. Yeah, it's quite cute. It's kind of an interesting album to just go through and just flip through to see what life was like and what it was like experimenting with camera at the time. So, yes, thank you for listening to us. And
0: next one is Willem de Kooning.
1: Yes, next one will be Willem de Kooning.